0: If you've had the opportunity to travel to a different country or experience another culture even within our own country, one will quickly come to the realization that one difference among cultures and countries is what we eat. Often when we think of Hispanic food, we think of Taco Bell or Chinese food, we think of the local Chinese takeout. But if we were to travel to one of those countries, of course, Taco Bell burritos wouldn't be on the menu, uh, nor would be our Americanized versions of Chinese food. Of course, cultures are different, more than just what we eat. The language and customs are all different. When one travels outside of their own culture, they begin to realize that things are very different. They recognize how vastly diverse our world really is. But if you were to travel across this globe and experience all of these various customs and countries, one thing would remain in common, and that is sin. Sin, the Bible says, is universal. It transcends culture. It's not merely an American problem or an Asian problem. It is a universal human problem. It is because in these various countries, in these various cultures, there is a singular commonality among every one of them. And that is people. People made in the image of God, but whom have rebelled against God. The Bible makes clear that sin is universal. As we see through Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, it wasn't only the nation of Israel that needed a Savior, but also the world. The world had a sin problem, and Jesus had come to be the Savior, not only of the Jews, as John 3.16 says, but the Savior of the world. So this morning we're going to think and continue thinking through uh, John's gospel and often in our study of the Bible we often diverse or uh, rather separate uh, books and chapters and think that they're uh, very different. Uh, we, we sort of divorce them. So so for example you might think oh Jesus has left Nicodemus and, and therefore the, the themes that Jesus was teaching on there in in John chapter 3 are are really unrelated to chapter 4. But as I hope to demonstrate to you uh, all the way back in chapter 2, I said, remember that chapter 2 through 5 is really one unit, and it's bookended by Jesus doing a miracle in Cana. So a few weeks ago we saw in chapter 2, Jesus was in in a region of Galilee, a little community called Cana. And Jesus turned water into wine, and uh, at the end of chapter five this mor- or chapter uh, four, rather this morning, you will see that Jesus again is, finds himself in Galilee in that little community called Cana, and there does a miracle again and so the apostle John wants us to understand that Jesus is teaching a similar theme, that all of these chapters are really after the same thing, the same idea, and that is that Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal the Father's glory and to save the world from sin. That Jesus came not only to save the Israelite people, but that Jesus Christ came to save the whole world. And so last week we asked that question there in chapter 3, how do I get in on the kingdom of God? How do I get in? How, how is it if I was to show up at the gate of the kingdom of heaven, what credential would I need? What would I need to have in order to enter? And we saw there through John chapter 3 that what you needed was to be born again. Jesus makes emphatically clear. He says that only those who have been born again, that is, have been regenerated, their dead heart has seen a resurrection, uh, can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the question this morning that we want to consider is not how you get in, but who gets in. We considered how last week. This week, we want to think about, well, who gets in? We understand how to do it, but but who's welcome? Who can come? Can can anyone get on this? Does God really save anyone? So, for example, in John chapter 3, the very end, the very last verse, the Apostle John says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever. For our King James readers this morning, whosoever whosoever believes who can get in on the kingdom of God so the point we want to consider this morning is how does one get in but more than that who gets in and to do that we want to consider John chapter 4 where John will answer the question of the whosoever there in verse 36 I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of course this is a very long chapter And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to read only sort of the beginning to set the the theme. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field of Jacob that had been given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me, O woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and what it is that it is, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it as his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you all say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, women, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, we could summarize John chapter 4 in this way. Jesus is the Christ. The Savior of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That Jesus Christ is the only Savior this world will ever know. The point that John is making and the answer of the question I put forward of who enters the kingdom of heaven is this. Those who believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation, Now, for us as Christians this morning, we might think, well, that's very simple. Duh. That's really kind of elementary. But frankly, that's the point of the entire Gospel of John. Every chapter is after that same point. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you might have eternal life. And you might think this morning, well, I already know that, and I believe that. Well, as I put forward a few weeks ago, and I want to just reiterate this again to you this morning is that believing or having faith or trusting is to grow over a lifetime. Surely you trust God more today than when you first put faith in Him. Surely this this morning, through trial and difficulty and struggle, you have greater faith in the sovereignty of God, in the providence of God, than when you first believed. Because faith is to grow over a lifetime. And so this morning, don't think that, oh, this is just an evangelistic message. That that John chapter 4 is just about compelling people to follow Jesus. Not at all. Not at all. This message is not only to the believer, but to the unbeliever alike. And so this morning, I want to show you or demonstrate to you three reasons to trust in Jesus. Believer, I want to give you three reasons why you need to trust Jesus this morning. Unbeliever, this morning I want to give you three reasons why you, you must this hour believe in Jesus. Number one, Jesus gives eternal life. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, Jesus displays himself, uh, demonstrates himself to be the giver of eternal life. He is the only giver of eternal life. He has been sent by the Father to give eternal life. Secondly, we'll see in verses 27 through 42 that Jesus is the only Savior this world will ever know. This is a truth that as Christians you better know and understand well in a world that is increasingly becoming Muslim. Let me say that again. In a world that is becoming increasingly Islamic, Christian, you better know how to defend this truth that Jesus Christ is the only Savior this world will ever know. I don't mean just affirm that. I mean compellingly convince others with the word that Jesus said that he was not a prophet, but the prophet, the final prophet. And if you cannot compellingly, convincingly in your own soul know that and tell that to others, you're in deep trouble in a world that is convincingly believing in another Messiah. Third and finally, we'll see here in this final uh, scene where Jesus heals the official son, beginning there in verse 43, that Jesus gives life where there is death. That Jesus has the power over life and death, therefore you should trust in him. So let's look very briefly at each of these points this morning, beginning in verse 1 through 26, that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life. Well, in verses 1 through 6, we saw that John sets the scene. Look with me there again. We are told that uh, Jesus is going to check out a town. Um, he's been doing ministry there in the Jerusalem area, and he's going to be leaving Judah in order to go back up to Galilee. Uh, The reason that sort of motivates him to do that is because the Pharisees are trying to sow discord among him and John. And Jesus essentially wants to make sure John finishes out his race, completes the mission that God has given given him, and departs. A couple things I want to note, note on that. Number one, verse two, Jesus makes or John the apostle comments here and he says, Jesus didn't baptize anyone. And his Baptist friend, you need to hear that again this morning. Uh, don't matter who baptized you, all right? Uh, A lot of times we can be follower of men rather than followers of the Lord. And that's why Jesus never baptized anyone. He didn't want any disparaging among the disciples. Oh, I was baptized by him. Or, oh, I was, remember in the church in Corinth? That was an issue. Oh, I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Paul. And Jesus here wants to make sure that his disciples are unified, not around obeying God, but rather around who God is. The second thing I want you to notice here in the passage is we are told some uh, some really helpful things to really set up the story. Look in your Bibles if you have it open. Again, I'm doing this because I want to show you oftentimes you can think that, oh, I need this extra material like a study Bible, or I need a commentary in order to understand and interpret the Bible. Now, in the Gospel of John, John really helps us out here. He tells us what we need to know in order to rightly understand the truth of God's word. Look what he does. Look here in verse three. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar. Now notice he introduced some facts here, doesn't he? First, he had to go to Samaria. Samaria wasn't Jerusalem it wasn't uh Judea he was going to a different country essentially he went to a place called Sychar and and he had some relative or he knew some people there or, or knew something about it and notice what John says he says that Jacob had given this area to his son Joseph well if you've been paying attention when we study the the, uh, the book of Genesis you you remember that on his deathbed uh Joseph uh, jo- uh, On his deathbed, Israel, Jacob, had given to his son Joseph this land. So it's significant, right? As the woman makes clear in a minute. And then finally, we're told here, the end of verse 6, that Jesus was tired and that it was about noon. In other words, Jesus was exhausted from his journey. He wanted a drink of water. Jesus himself was a picture of what this woman really was. In other words, Jesus was thirsty He was weary, and this woman, as you'll see, didn't recognize her own thirst and her own need for Jesus. And Jesus here is demonstrating that. And finally here, we're told that it's about noon, the sixth hour. that It was the heat of the day, a time in which nobody would have been coming to that well. Nobody would have been joining in there. Uh, Jesus was all alone. Finally here, I want to show again, Bear, in verse 4, notice what he said. He had to pass through Samaria. He had to. He had to go that way now many have taken uh, this particular story about Samaria about the woman of Samaria and have added extra biblical information in it and I bet you 've heard it it is you know the Jews didn't go through Samaria. Jews went around Samaria because they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to taint themselves. You see, Samarians were like dirty people. They, they would have made them unclean. If they would have went through Samaria, then, the, then a real devout Jew would have been unclean and therefore unable to worship at the temple. I'm sure you've heard something of that. Well, most modern-day scholars in understanding and particularly reading a first-century Jewish historian named Josephus Uh, testifies to the reality that most Jews traveled through Samaria. Most Jews, even devout Jews, Pharisees alike, would have traveled through Samaria. And so when John the Apostle says he had to go that way, it was because it was the shortest route. But more than that, literally it means it was necessary. In other words, Jesus is on a mission. And that mission, as we'll see in chapter 4, is to do the Father's will. He had to do this. He had to go here. Because Jesus was not only the Savior to the Jews, but to the Gentiles alike. Well, beginning there in verse, uh, verse 7, you'll see that uh, we're told that Jesus uh, meets a Samaritan woman and he asks for a drink. Now, John, of course, comments on this and says this is culturally and socially abnormal in a number of ways. Number one, Jesus is talking to a woman. In this particular culture, it would have been wrong for a man to talk with a woman in public that was not his wife. Secondly, we are told that John, or John rather, tells us, secondly, that Jews, there in verse nine, have no dealings with Samaritans. In other words, they have nothing to do with them. They might buy some food from them, as his disciples clearly were going to do, but they didn't mingle with them, and they surely didn't ask for anything from them. Anything free, that is. But Jesus here is breaking down these cultural norms in order to ultimately teach his disciples the real reason he came, and that is to offer eternal life to all those who would believe in him, not Jews only. And so Jesus asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. And, of course, Jesus is using these sort of earthly metaphors, just as he did with uh, Nicodemus. You remember with Nicodemus, he says, hey, the wind, right? Nicodemus, you know about the wind? Well, here with the woman, he's using this earthly metaphor of water. Give me a drink. The woman says, okay. Jesus says, hey, if you knew who was asking you to drink, you would ask me for a drink. And the woman's like, what? You're asking me for a drink, but yet you want me to ask you for a drink? This is very confusing. What are you going to use, Jesus, to draw this water up from this well? It's, it's a very deep well. It's, it's some hundred feet deep. What are you going to use? Of course, the woman, just like Nicodemus, thinks Jesus is only talking physical when he's really thinking spiritual. This leads us, if you really pay attention to what Jesus is doing, and particularly the, the Apostle John, is he is laying down these two people, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, and comparing them. And ultimately demonstrating to us that both of them have the same need. The Samaritan woman is coming out at noon. Uh, most women would have came early in the morning or late in the evening. And of course, as we'll see in the story, it was her immorality that had led her to be there during the day when no one else would have been around. We were told later in the text that she had been, she had, had five husbands or, or at least relationships with five other men, but now was on to her sixth one that was not even her husband. She was an immoral woman. Compare her to the, uh, the righteous Nicodemus. The the ruler of Israel, the, the one who is the expert on the law. We see here that John is contrasting these two characters to demonstrate both of them had the same spiritual need. As Jesus makes clear to the woman that she needed him to satisfy her thirst. There in verses 7 through 10, Jesus exposes her own spiritual thirst. And says to her, look, if you understood who I was, then you would be asking for me for living water. Jesus offers her water that is living, that's endless in supply. That's like a spring that does not run out. The woman naturally asks him in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? We could say negatively, yeah, right. You want to give me something that's greater than our father Jacob could give? I highly doubt that. In other words, the woman is coming to her own conclusions about Jesus and his identity. But Jesus presses her forward down the line. Look here at verse 13. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. Ultimately, the woman asked to have this water, the spiritual thirst. But what does this water mean? Well, rightly to understand the, the metaphor that Jesus is is to understand how the prophets in the Old Testament use this idea of water. Now, for you and I, we take for granted the fact that we can go to the refrigerator and grab a bottle of water or we can grab a cup and turn on the faucet and lo and behold, water comes out. But at a place where water... Uh, was scarce in a place a a desert arid area where if you didn't have water you die water becomes synonymous with life and it becomes a connection so old testament prophets would use water as a symbol to life and that water was connected to god so for example in jeremiah chapter 2 The prophet writes, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The prophet Jeremiah says that the people of Israel have gone to another source of life other than God. In other words, God is the one who supplies his people with the endless Water of life. Or through the prophet Isaiah. The prophet told of a time in the life of Israel. Where water would be in abundance. And this abundant water would be a sign of the Messiah. So in Isaiah 44. The prophet writes. For I will pour out on the thirsty land water. And streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit. Upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now we don't have time to go through all of the occurrences of this. But you'll see there through the prophet Isaiah a connection between water, which is physical. And the spiritual nourishment that the Holy Spirit provides. In other words, the the prophets were laying the groundwork for the Messiah to come. Who would be the revelation and mediator of this new life that God was giving So much so that Jesus here in chapter 4 is saying that the water that he gives is satisfying eternal life that is mediated by the Holy Spirit. And it is only given by Jesus the Messiah. So in chapter 7 of John's gospel, we'll see in a few weeks that Jesus comes to the crowds and he says to them, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, quoting the Old Testament prophets, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus is saying that he has inaugurated the new era of God's redemptive plan where he will be the mediator of eternal life given by the Spirit of God. So this morning you think, well, eternal life just means to live forever in heaven. Isn't that what eternal life means? Not at all. Not at all. Eternal life in the Bible means an unending presence of God in one's life. This is why as Christians we believe that eternal life doesn't begin at death, but at new birth. At regeneration new life begins and eternal life begins, that unmitigated, unending presence of God mediated by whom? The Holy Spirit. And Jesus here is telling this woman that I will satisfy what your soul longs for. I will satisfy your spiritual thirst. You see, sin has put us in a place where we are thirsty. And what we do because of our sin nature is run around this world looking for things to satisfy our thirst. Just like this woman was there at the well trying to draw up water to satisfy her physical thirst, Jesus says that we do the same through sin. But see, sin never satisfies. Sin never satisfies. C.S. Lewis calls this, this thirst, this unquenchable thirst. C.S. Lewis says this, it is an ever-increasing craving For an ever-diminishing pleasure. Those who have been addicted to pornography know that. It's never enough. Those who've been addicted to alcohol know that. You can never get high. What do you have to do to get high? You have to drink more and more and more and more and more. Those who've been addicted to drugs know that. What once was just a little to get you high, it takes more and more and more. Well, friends, do you know pride is the same way? An ever diminishing pleasure where you have to have more of it. Lust, greed, all of them act the same way. More and more, a spiritual thirst for more. And Jesus says that these things will never satisfy. But if you come to me and you believe on me, I will satisfy your thirst forever. Friend, believe in Jesus this morning and you will be satisfied in him. We sing that and I will glory in my Redeemer. Satisfied in him. Oh, what it means to be satisfied. Brother, sister, are you satisfied in Jesus this morning? Is he enough for you? Or do you have to have something more? Friend, if you want more this morning, then you've never drank from Jesus. Jesus alone satisfies what our soul desires. Come to him. But not only here in this passage do we see that Jesus is the Christ, the one whom through God mediates this ever quenching thirst of ours, but we see here, secondly, in verses 16-26, through This conversation about worship. You might think, well, what does this have to do with what Jesus has just taught about quenching spiritual thirst? It's that, remember last week we talked about how regeneration leads to worship. Namely, obedience. That when one is born again, it begets obedience. Well, when one's thirst is satisfied, one is content and thankful man this this is good this is good man I've been thirsty all day this is quenching and it, it creates a sort of a sense of satisfaction and happiness and ultimately worship and so what Jesus here is is ultimately after is that that once one's thirst is quenched then one worships God Notice here in verses 16 through 18 that Jesus reveals this woman's moral disarray. He says to her, go get your husband. Let's let's talk a little bit more. And she says, I don't have any husband. Ah. Jesus is like, that's right. You've actually had five husbands. And now there's some debate whether or not she literally had five husbands and divorced five husbands. It could be that she just had five men. That's a possibility. Regardless, the point is is really clear that this woman is quite immoral. It wasn't that she's had one illicit affair. She's had one after another. If there was anyone, perhaps, that was more sinful in her community, there was none. But Jesus here reveals to her everything, in her words, that she's ever did. And by doing so, he points to her and defines to her what true worship is. Now, you'll see her kind of deflect a bit in verse 19. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, she goes on to seek to understand and to really kind of test Jesus to see. Here's the point. I I will show you really quickly what I mean. Uh, There in uh, there in verse 21, Jesus says there's this debate over worship. So there's this long time debate over the Jews and the Samaritans over where they should worship. Should they worship in the northern territory of Israel or in the southern territory? So this is kind of generational. This goes back a long way. And Jesus here is revealing to her that true worship is going to be spiritual worship. And He says to her there in verse 21, Listen, there is a time coming when, verse 23, When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In other words, Jesus is saying that now that I've arrived, that no longer is worship going to be tied to a particular place, but rather the Holy Spirit is going to indwell the believer. Therefore, you can worship God wherever you are and regardless of your place. And much has been made here about this particular passage where Jesus says that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. What does this mean? Well, if you look there in verse twenty-three, you'll see "in spirit and truth." That preposition "in" modifies both spirit and truth. What that means is is that this is not, therefore, sort of one idea, spiritual truth, but rather spirit and truth, inseparable parts. In other words, you can't just worship in spirit and not in truth, or you can't just worship in truth. And not spiritually. Rather, to be acceptable worship, worship of the Father must be in truth and in spirit, or in spirit and in truth. That is, inward and genuine, in a spiritual manner and in accordance with the truth. D.A. Carson writes this These are not two inseparable characteristics of worship that must be offered. It must be spirit and truth, essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and in personal knowledge of and in conformity to the word made flesh, the one who is God's truth, the full exposition and fulfillment of God and his saving purposes. In other words, one cannot say they worship God and not worship through the person, Jesus Christ. This is why in our gatherings we talk about Jesus so much, because Jesus is whom we worship through. Friends, this is very important when you are conversing in a world that believes in syncretism, in a world that affirms many ways to God, in a world that is overly spiritualized, that says that you can meet God through a tree or you can meet God through nature. You'll hear that's a lot. You'll say, you know, oh, I don't need to go to church. Uh, I really worship God through fishing. Or I worship God through hunting. Or I worship God through shopping. Or I worship God through wandering through the woods. Well, friend, that's just simply not true. You might think you're worshiping God, but the Bible reveals that you're not. Jesus says very clearly that the only way that, that you can truly worship God is to focus on Jesus Christ. That's it. This is why we spend all of our worship gatherings focusing on Jesus. We want to make Jesus big. We want to think about Jesus. Jesus is the one who has revealed the Father to us. Do we want to know the Father? It is only through Jesus. This is why in our gathered worship services, we want to sing hymns that intentionally focus on Jesus and the work that Jesus has done. That's not to mean we don't sing about the Father or the Spirit, but but rather our intentional focus is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. More than that, we want to think spiritually. Look at what Jesus says here, verse 24. He gives the reason why. God is Spirit. What this means is that God isn't physical like we are physical. In other worship of the one true and living God is an invisible act. It is a spiritual act. This is why we do not have icons in this building. This is why we do not have pictures of God in this building or depictions of Jesus or depictions of other means. It is through the one true and living God. More than that, we see that it must be informed by truth. God does not leave it to your ingenuity or creativity in how he desires to be worshipped. This is why we don't have puppet shows or, or skits in our gathered worship. Not that those are things are, are ungodly or unimportant. It's because God didn't command such things. But God did command us to sing and to read Scripture and to pray, and to preach God's word, and so we give ourselves to those means. There are many things that we could do. We could show movies. We could put on skits up here. We could uh, dance around. We could do a whole host of things, but none of those things are informed by the truth. Jesus reveals in his word how he desires to be worshipped, and he orders his church. The whole goal of next week, uh, of ordering our church, And our bylaws isn't because we love to think about bylaws and constitutions and it really gets us excited, but rather we want to order our church around how we believe the Bible's revealed the ordering of the church. This is how we worship in spirit and truth. Friends, this is why we must give ourselves to studying God's Word. Uh, to thinking about God in his word because it is in his word that he reveals how we approach him. And the point we must come away with, the only way that we approach God is through his son, Jesus Christ. That he's the giver of life and he is the true access. This leads us to our second point there in verses 27 through 42. That Jesus is the only savior. If he is the mediator of the new covenant, then he is the only way we can get to the father. There's no other hope for this world. Jesus' disciples come back, we are told. They're quite alarmed that Jesus is not only speaking with a woman, but speaking with a Samaritan woman. In response to the disciples returning, the woman returns to town, we are told, leaving her jar behind. Leaving behind what she really came to do. Jesus has transformed her life. She's changed. She's abandoned her old way. She's going a new way. Notice here in verse 29. Come and see, she says to the townsfolks, a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Rather, we see that in the English. It might come across that she's doubting here. More, more likely, what she intends to say here is that this is the Christ. Come and see. And so they went out of town. Well, as the, as the disciples are there with Jesus, and, and these townspeople are coming, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples, to inform his disciples. And remember, John was there. John, the apostle, who, who's recording these events to us, he was there. And, and Jesus is using this as, a, as a, an opportunity to teach them some things about the gospel and about the kingdom. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Well, there's the point, isn't it? The point that Jesus is after is that that he's the savior of the world. And he uses that metaphor of a harvester harvesting food. In other words, what satisfied Jesus was to do his father's will. That's his food that he's referring to. Again, he's using these metaphors to help teach spiritual truth. And he uses the picture of food and harvest to help his disciples understand that his real mission is to save the world from their sin. This is demonstrated by John's comment and the belief of the people that they were believing that he is the one who gives life where there is death. We were told that this woman is so compelled by who Jesus is uh, that she goes and tells others about him. Not just tells that, hey, this is a really wonderful guy, or hey, this is a, a guy that's going to give you some good advice. But he goes, and she, the message she says is, is sort of reduced to, she told, he told me everything that I ever did. Well, of course, she said much more than that. Of course, the gospel isn't just reduced to Jesus having supernatural power. But it's clearly articulated in this truth that indeed he is the Savior of the world. That people were believing in him and trusting in him for eternal life, and that's again that point that we're seeing throughout that Jesus Christ is the savior of not only the Jews but of the Samaritans. Look with you if you have your Bibles open. Just notice a few things here. First, in chapter three, we see Jesus going to a religious, or rather, a religious leader coming to Jesus. In chapter four, the beginning there. We see Jesus there sharing the gospel, the hope of eternal life with a Samaritan. And look at how chapter four ends with Jesus healing an official son. Three different types of people from three different walks of life, all communicating the same truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Regardless of who they were religiously or culturally or sinfully. Jesus Christ came with one singular mission that the Father had, and that was to save the world through his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus Christ came not just merely to be a sage, that is to give good advice about how to live. More than that, he didn't come just merely to be a moral example for you and I to follow But Jesus Christ distinctly came from the father to die for our sins, to pay the penalties that our sin rightly deserves. And so what Jesus Christ is saving us from is from his own father's wrath so that all those who believe in him might have eternal life. Friend, do you recognize then this passage is teaching that the only hope the Samaritans had was Jesus? The only hope the Jews had was Jesus. The only hope you have is Jesus. I think a second sort of application of this is is sort of the compelling witness of the Samaritan woman. Of course, throughout this, there is a sort of helpful application of this is the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This woman leaves behind the water jar and she goes to town and tells people about Jesus. J.C. Ryle helpfully says this. We may well doubt our own love to Christ in our hearts if we are never moved to speak of him. We We may well doubt the safety of our own souls if we feel no concern about the souls of others. Do you think those townspeople cared about that woman? Not at all. She was an adulterer. She was a fornicator. She... She didn't have just five husbands. She had, she had another one that wasn't even her husband. Friend, and even in the Samaritan culture, they upheld the law, the Torah. They upheld the Ten Commandments. They had them plastered in their courtrooms. Do you think that they had affection for this woman? But what did she do? You see, when one is captivated by Christ, they are compelled to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as this woman What a picture for all of us, those who have their only hope satisfied, their thirst satisfied, their longing satisfied. Friend, when is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? You know, so often as Christians, we we kind of grow weary of evangelism because we've never done it. We make excuses. Here's a woman who was a social outcast. Very confused, but who had sufficient means to go and tell others about Christ. Friend, let me just encourage you. Confess your guilt, but move beyond your guilt of your lack of evangelism. And just have conversations about the gospel. What did Jesus do? What did this woman do? What will the blind man do later? I don't know anything about this guy, but one thing I know, once I was blind, but now I see This is all it takes. Well, third and finally, we see here in chapter four that not only does Jesus give eternal life, not only is Jesus saving us from the father's wrath and our sin, but that Jesus gives life where there is death, that eternal life not only means the unmitigated presence of God in our life, but it means that we will live forever. And John illustrates here in this final uh, story in chapter 4 that Jesus Christ has authority over life and death. Sorry. There's an alert, and everyone is getting it at the same time. Look at that. Maybe you should mute your phones before church. Maybe not. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, Chapter four, uh, beginning in verse 46, John writes, so Jesus came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Galilee, from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed that the word that Jesus had spoke to him and went on his way. And when he was going, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour that he began to get better and said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that the hour was when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he was come from Judea in Galilee. John here demonstrate that Jesus is the one who gives life where there is death. A distraught father, we are told, comes to intercede for his son. And Jesus here confronts the man as an illustration about the same subject that we have been thinking about, and that is belief. You see, belief is that unifying theme that unites that, is who gets into the kingdom, that is, those who believe. And here, this father illustrates exactly the kind of response that we are to have to the person and work of Jesus Christ, namely, believing in him, believing without seeing. A particular theme throughout John's gospel is going to be believing without seeing. There's a story you know well, perhaps, about one of Jesus' disciples after the resurrection. One of his disciples doubted that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he said, unless I see with my eyes and unless I touch Jesus, then I will believe. And Jesus says to him, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And here we see a father broken by his son's... uh, Immediate death. He's on his deathbed. His his little boy is going to die, and he comes and and begs Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. Here's the point. Verse 48 Unless you all, this is plural, not talking to the, he's not talking just to the father, the official. He says, Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. In In other words, what Jesus is saying is that you'll only believe if you see me do tricks for you. But not this father. No, see, this father had genuine faith. Genuine saving faith. See, see he, he had never seen Jesus perhaps do a miracle before. But he believed that Jesus had the power to do it. The official pleads with him, please come. Please come before my, fa- my son dies. And there in verse 50, Jesus says, go, your son will live. And immediately the father leaves. He he doesn't continue begging. He doesn't plead with Jesus one more second. One more moment. But he believes upon Jesus. He believes that, that Jesus has authority. To bring life where there is death. That he is the giver of eternal life. And he turns and he goes home. And on his way home. It is revealed that his son was healed. At the very moment Jesus said go. Friends this is the exact same. Illustration of the water turned to wine, isn't it? That Jesus has authority to do things without presence. In other words, Christ's word is as good as Christ's presence. You believe that? What do I mean? That Christ's word is as good as Christ's presence. Where do we see Christ's presence this morning? But through his word. Christ is revealed to us through his words. The, he is the word, the eternal logos. He, it, we meet Christ here in his word. Do you desire Christ's presence in your life? It is mediated through his word to you. His word is sufficient. You don't need Christ to do some miraculous sign before you move mountains or change the sky, a different purple, uh, a different color rather, or, or to heal you. But rather believe in him. He is present with you today that he will save you. That he has authority to speak. Even without presence there. He he didn't even touch that little boy. He spoke. He was miles away. He spoke and he lived. Without a touch. Only a word. Brothers and sisters, remind yourself today that Christ is present in our affirmities. Though he is not physically here. He can heal us today. He can heal our souls today with his word. Just as He healed that young boy that day. Friends, the point is the same. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He can save the religious leader. He can save the immoral woman. He can save the the, the Gentile official. He can save all because He came to save all. And friend, this morning, He can save you. By turning from your sins and trusting in Him alone for salvation. By believing in Him, He can save you. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, turn from your sins today and believe upon Him. Trust in Him alone. And He will save you. He will cast no one out. Friend, your sin is not too great for salvation. Your religious knowledge isn't so great that you can't humble yourself to come to Jesus. You see, it's only those who believe upon Jesus have eternal life. It's only those who trust that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's only those who have trusted that Jesus has the power of life and death that have eternal life. Trust in yourself today and you will be doomed. Trust in others and you will be dead. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would be known to us. Through your word, your eternal son, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would regenerate dead hearts, renew souls that have become lethargic in you. Renew us, I pray, for your glory and our eternal good in Christ's name. Amen.